In November 1993, Alan McLaughlin became an eternal hero of Irish football with a goal in Belfast that sent us to only our second ever World Cup finals. In 2014, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Alan to discuss his book, A Different Shade of Green, The Alan McLaughlin Story, in which he talked about his personal battle with cancer, that famous night in Windsor Park, Roy Keane's Rolex watch and much more. Following the sad passing of a legendary figure at just 54 and to pay tribute to a proud son of Ireland, we are resharing his chat with Dave O'Grady for Pogue McGoal here. Rest in peace, Alan McLaughlin. And thank you for the sweetest of memories. Up straight out to McLaughlin! It's there! Alan McLaughlin has got it! Oh, it's a great goal by Alan McLaughlin, the substitute. The shot, no! Alan McLaughlin has found the net! And the Republic celebrate what they believe is a passage to the World Cup in the United States. Uh, that one's for me, my wife and my little girl at home, Abby. And obviously for all the supporters here tonight, all the people in the bars and in the clubs back in Ireland there, that, that was for them. 21 years ago, Alan McLaughlin entered the field of play at Windsor Park and scored the crucial goal that sent Ireland on their way to USA 94. Just two years ago, he entered an even greater personal battle with cancer of the kidney. Now he's releasing in conjunction with author Bryce Evans, A Different Shade of Green, the Alan McLaughlin story. Alan, thanks a million for joining us on Pogue McGoal. Lots of great stories in the book, both professionally and personally from your career. It's probably fair to say, Alan, that it tells the story of Alan McLaughlin the player and also Alan McLaughlin the man yeah well you know it's difficult um, certainly when you start this process out it wasn't something that I entered into uh, with great vigour if I'm honest it took a lot of persuasion uh, three months of talking and uh, and, and mulling over whether I, I should partake in this exercise really and in the end I decided to I thought it was it was it, it was right to do and I decided to do it really uh, and a real big thing was for my family's sake because I've got two girls Abby's 23 and, and, and Megan's 20 and uh, they know obviously of their dad's uh, career and, and they're older they've got they're, they're, they've got more inquisitive but really they don't know much too too much else they're girls they weren't really interested in football so it was a way of documenting stuff for them that they could maybe pass on in in, in future times and also um, there was the genuine I felt there was a genuine interest in, in, in what happened to me and there's a, there's a significant paragraph further down and later in the book which was a big reason why I decided to, to write the book uh, about you know uh, spotting things and, yeah. and making sure you take appropriately and, and quickly and that's one of the things that a lot of people will notice Alan uh, your openness surrounding the cancer is quite remarkable you mentioned there was a bit of a reluctance when planning the book um, did you always want to be as open as you have been and did you look at say other professionals who've come out publicly on, on the matter of, of cancer and, and spotting things as you said you know the likes of John Hartson and I think more recently Stylian Petrov as well there's, there's quite yeah. a few former footballers now that are coming out and did that inspire you in some way? Not really. I just, as, as, as John and Cillian did, it's probably just morally you think it's the right thing to do. There's a, there's a perception, with particularly with people that play football involved in sports, that they're sort of like immune to any uh, sort of ailments or illness and you're, you're, you're superhuman and, oh, they're so fit and, and they must be so healthy. It doesn't work like that. That's now, you know, as I found how life pans out. And, you know, if I uh, was in the spotlight and, and I was in a, a very privileged position through hard work and endeavour that, 
uh, I played football professionally, made a living out of it. Is then, you know, I, I luckily had the vehicle uh, in terms of being able to speak to the press and and and, and talk to them, and, and they would obviously it was a story for them and a huge story, but obviously it was a vehicle for me then to say, look, you know, try to not sit on your hands if anything happens and you're not sure, uh, and, and spot the signs and, and see the signs, and you know it could ultimately save your life. It, it did for me, but also growing up in an environment and being in an environment of of, of of grown men from the age of 16 where you had to be very open and very honest and you know little things like jumping in the shower it, it yeah. had to be done and there was no way of hiding that and, and if you were shy you had to sort of just get on with it so in a position where I'm very fortunate I'm, I'm strong enough to if there's an issue go to the doctor deal with it or as I, as I did took myself to the hospital and say look something's not right something needs to be done I'm not prepared to sit around and wait for tomorrow to feel better I, I want something done because I know my body I know something's wrong Indeed I don't want to be giving away anything from the book but there really is a, an amazing start to it Alan where you talk about the first realisation of the cancer mm. and the, the feel this kind of a feeling of an unknown fear an unwanted visitor um, and you're kind of sort of then comparing that to the fear that you first experienced on that famous night playing Northern Ireland in yeah. Windsor Park and there was a lot of unknown things at that time I think well you shouldn't have you know I felt you know as a first time I shouldn't have felt fear on that night but obviously I, I was aware of the situation the political and, and, and the, you know the, the, the situation that had been there for many many years and, and still undercurrents at times but thankfully it's, it, it's, it's vastly improved now and it's great And but at that time it wasn't and so to experience that first hand so close to me and literally yards from the bench where I was sitting yeah it, it was frightening because you know when you're living and you go up in Manchester you're, you're slightly detached or even living in Dublin you're, you're, you're detached from the realities as was Belfast as was Northern Ireland at that particular time so yeah it, it was a, a, a frightening experience that, that people could be so animated and so vile not vile the wrong word so um, forthright in screaming at you and when it wasn't your fault if that makes sense yeah. you, you're, you're not a part of, I didn't create the problem I'm just here partaking in the football match so it was a real um, eye opener really in, 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 in uh, particularly for everyone involved in the squad and not just because you were born in, in the Republic of Ireland made you some sort of immune to it because you were born in England it, it, it was a load of nonsense it was it was a frightening experience. It was an experience that it was I felt safer on the pitch rather than sitting in, in, in the dugout. So, And I think it was a sobering thing for all of us that although we lived, uh, and most of us uh, lived in, virtually all of us apart from maybe one or two of the staff lived in and, and applied our trade in, in England, that what was only a few miles away relatively across the water was, was such a difficult time. As you said, you felt more uh, at ease on the pitch and what transpired to be a very famous night for Irish football, which you, you do cover in the book. I think it was Ray Houghton that initially got subbed and he, he wasn't too best yeah. pleased about getting subbed. But uh, I think he said to Jack Charlton that he was the only one getting any chances and Jack said to them he was the only one missing chances. So you, yeah. you were put in, in the right position and it all worked out. Well, listen, that's just a, it's a gamble whether, you know, I'd been on previously and I'd, I'd been unlucky, I'd hit the bar, the post, and things scramble off the line. But at that point, Jack felt it was right. And I wouldn't expect anything other from Ray. He, any professional player uh, is disappointed to be substituted. And he knew the magnitude of the game. And he, and he and as such a great player he was, he felt he had something more to give. But it just fortunate for Jack, really. It was fortunate for me. Uh, I wouldn't say fortunate how I took the goal because something I'd practiced and I, I just felt 
comfortable at that time. And I, I, as soon as I, sh- I shot, and I knew it was in the net. But I, I just think it's quite it's quite difficult for me to time. It, it was more the euphoria of scoring the first goal for Ireland rather than the euphoria of, oh, I've just scored and that goal potentially could take us to the World Cup. There's no thoughts in my head anything other than, thank God, I've scored my first international <laughs> yeah. goal. That was it. That was it. That was the overriding joy. That's how much it meant to me. And that really, for me, until after the game had finished and all the, the hugging and the, the shouting and the singing and we realised we've, we've, we've made the World Cup and the goal is significant that's where then you know the euphoria of what's just happened but like I said many many times I, I played a very very minor part in that qualifying campaign and you know I've managed to hog the highlight uh, the limelight since then for that campaign but there's obviously players that played in every game and grafted away at Spain and grafted uh, in all the games and I just picked up the limelight at the end but I balance it out by saying well well actually I was in Every squad, I turned up for every game. I didn't have an excuse that, you know, I pulled a hamstring in summertime. I was there. I wanted to be there. And I was there thereafter, even though not involved, because it was a privilege to play for Ireland and it's a privilege to be picked through such a great group of players. Uh, and that's what the biggest draw for me was turning up week in, week out when selected to be mixing the likes of Paul McGrath, Packy Bonner, uh, Dave O'Leary, Liam Brady very early on, Roy Keane. Andy Towns and Steve Staunton. These are great players and I was in there being selected and mixing with them and on a professional level and, and on a social level and on a, on a friendship level. So it was everything I wanted to as a player was to be involved in that sort of high-profile situation and it, it, it was a magical time and I hope the book intact encapsulates not just only you know the good times with Ireland. There was some heartache with Ireland as well and there was some heartache at the start of my career and as I say to the young lads at Portsmouth now, there was more... There's more lows than highs in football. And when the highs come along, as it did in, in Belfast that night, then you must grasp them and make the most of it. But overall, in context of the book, I'm, I'm really, really pleased with the book. I'm really pleased with the response the book has had. Uh, like I said, I, I don't have an extra grind. I'm not having a go at an ex-manager yeah. who, who might have had one or two things to say. And, and I'm not continually doing that. It's just an honest, open book about myself, my life, what's happened to us and and. and are moving forward really and I hope people enjoy it if, if they wish to care to buy it I think they will enjoy it you'd also talk about a well-known night in Irish football which might not necessarily have been a good one Alan which was the abandoned Ireland-England friendly at Lansdowne Road the game was ruined by a right-wing group called Combat 18 a lot of people were lucky I think Alan that nobody really died that night but as a player and that how did you reflect on that I suppose there was a lot of confusion amongst players not just in the Ireland squad but the England squad as well, I'd say. Yeah, I think uh, whether it caught people by surprise, I, I'm not too sure. But I mean, the, the biggest issue for me on that particular night was where the English fans were actually uh, put within the stadium. They were put in the, the top right-hand corner uh, above the Irish fans who were, who, who were below. And as an association, it was such a, uh, and with with the guard, it, it was a it was a ridiculous decision. They should have been behind the goal at one end, and that might have curtailed any sort of uh, violence that happened within the stadium but that wasn't the case it, it, it was managed in my opinion poorly and ultimately with ourselves being one up to a great goal from David Kelly um, the game was stopped quite rightly so and it, and it ended up in a, in a little bit of a farce for it, it shouldn't have got to that stage it was poor planning poor decision making caused the game to end and the players as, as we were in, in, in the North when, on that fateful night in, in, in November '93. Uh, you know, they're there to do a job. They're there to play their trade, to, to try and do the best they can. And once again, you know, it's, 
I'm not saying once again, it, uh, you know, trouble erupted and yeah. it affected the game for people that were there to, to generally come and see a great game of football, which ultimately that's what it's about. It's a game of football. Yeah, and it certainly wasn't ruined by England fans by any means. They certainly weren't a group that was representative of uh, the English football fans, that's for sure. There's a lot of amusing stories in the book as well, Alan. <laughs> One such chapter includes a, a amusing and slightly unhappy ending to the USA shopping spree for Roy Keane's Rolex watch. Uh, it's a chapter, <laughs> without giving too much of the story away, can you tell us a, the gist of what happened? Um, well, yeah, I don't need too much away, but basically um, Roy wasn't earning uh, too much money at Forest at the time and, and we'd go for a stroll uh, over an afternoon and we'd, we'd, we'd pass the same shop, uh, second-hand shop, uh, a jewellery shop in, in, in Boston we were in and, he, you know, he'd stop and have a look at the watch and I would stop the first time, didn't take much notice, the third time he stopped again and I asked him, he, he, he admired the watch basically and uh, he admitted that he didn't have the money, enough money to buy it and I offered to, to purchase the watch for him on the proviso that he would um, pay me back in instalments over the next four or five trips and that's what we did but unfortunately uh, the watch was stolen uh, stolen not more than four hours later and we went out to a function Roy decided <laughs> to leave the watch in his room and the hotel was robbed um, and the key cards were, were, were used and uh, and it was taken and uh, unfortunately for Roy he lost his watch but still had to pay me back <laughs> the instalments uh, but he he's fine I'm sure he's got a nice uh, he's, he certainly had a nice new watch on his wrist when he signed to Man United so uh, no yeah, that was just one of the anecdotes one of the stories along the way so uh uh, because it's Roy, it's a big story. Anyone else is probably not such a big story. But uh, now, uh, you know, he's. I got on fine with Roy, and I, I was, you know, a few years older than Roy, and more of a senior profession in the team. And you know, I was just helping him out as I would hope someone else would have helped me out at that particular time. But uh, that's that, that's the story in a nutshell. But well, like I said there's more fine detail in in the actual read within the book. Yeah, I think I think I do think a lot of fans will look forward to reading that. Um, you mentioned how you come onto the international scene just before Italia '90. I know it, it's quite bizarre. I think Gary Waddock, the player you replaced, he was driven away in the same taxi in it. But I know yeah. something you've never regretted, Alan, is of course playing for Ireland, and you feel quite strongly that some of the criticisms aimed at English-born Irish players and this term plastic paddies I guess it can be quite harsh at times I mean as as you said when you looked at the likes of yourself well, it's only harsh at times it's, it's, it's only harsh at times when the other international teams are not doing so well that's when it's you know at that particular juncture in time like I said Ray, Ray Houghton had scored in Stuttgart uh, we we drew in in, in Italy uh, we drew then in the Euro qualifiers uh, both games uh, at Wembley and at Lansdowne Road uh, I played in the game where we beat England 4-1 in terms cross and we were 1-0 up to England when Dave Kelly scored so I think there's a pattern in the team and when the, the press decide well yeah, we've had enough of these lads you know, taking the mickey out of us and we should be beating them but we can't well what's the next angle well they're all born in England anyway they're not actually Irish so but people seem to forget as the English press did that, that wonderful goal John Barnes scored where was he born? He certainly wasn't born in England. So, you know, there was extra grind if you want them to be. And actually, at that particular time, it was fashionable and it was the dumb thing because it was a cheap shot. And it was a cheap shot because uh, we were doing so well uh, as a, a footballing nation at that time and we were on the up. And, and, and England really were, were stagnant apart from their, their great display in, in 1990. And that's just where I think that it, it's all boiled down to. I mean, if you look at teams nowadays um, and, and then, uh, they were utilising the same rules as 
certainly Jack was using. Uh, and now it's got to the point it's just natural. I mean, Germany, uh, lots of indeed, there's a lot of yeah, yeah, that, that, that are not actually born in Germany, but it's not even it's not even spoken about now. But I guarantee it will still be brought up uh, along the line if if you know we were to play England and. Uh, and, and get one over and then they'll say oh he was born in England but this this and this and it's just for me a stunk at the time a little bit of jealousy and, and a little bit of uh, uh, just the press you know stoking things up because England weren't, weren't quite uh, up to the mark certainly when they were playing Ireland at the time And for Ireland in the present day Alan would you agree that we are not in a position where we're going to have a wealth of talent playing at the top of the Premier League or particularly there's very little Champions League players that we have seen about we should be completely open to using our diaspora uh, as best as we can. Well, as long as it's in, as long as it's within the rules, which it clearly is, and, and it has been, and, and, and it's what other teams and countries are certainly uh, are doing, uh, as you mentioned, Germany, uh, etc. But I certainly think uh, it comes in cycles. It was a golden time for Irish soccer uh, from '88 through to uh, uh, when Nick took uh, the team to, to penalties in, against Spain. There was some heartbreak with a couple of European championships, which we should have qualified for. And obviously Thierry Henry's uh, handball situation. There's lots of things, but there's always been uh, there's always been endeavour. There's always been a, a will to to try and play uh, reasonable football, and we've always been there or thereabouts for, for such a small country. And of course, with the uh, with the advent of the Premier League and the amount of foreign players now uh, within the Premier League, it makes it very difficult even for homegrown players now to play at the highest level um, on, on a week to week basis. So. Uh, it is what it is. There is some talent. Uh, had a great start to the, the group so far. I certainly hope against Scotland, who are much improving as well, that we can get a positive result. But uh, it might be five years. It might be. It might be next year. It might be two years. It might be twenty years before you get a group of players that maybe quite achieve as much as uh, certainly a group or a squad did within twelve years. And listen, look back on it fondly. Um, and, and don't wish too much that it should be like that all the time because it generally isn't. And I mean, you can only look at England and, and, and what and, and how they performed since '66. There's not been too many highs along the way for them. So I think as long as people are level-headed and enjoy their football, and you know, and certainly want players to come and play for Ireland and not you know have sloppy shoulders when it comes to uh, pre uh, sorry the end of season, yeah, and they soon to be on holiday somewhere rather than turning up to friendlies and qualifiers or high-profile tournaments uh, maybe in America or elsewhere. Uh, and that's the mark of whether you've got committed players. And I know one thing for sure, that the Irish fans are committed fully to supporting their team and they should support them through the, the good times, the bad times and uh, everything else that goes with it. That is the, that's part and parcel of supporting your, your team, your country. It's also part and parcel of, of playing for your team and country, but it's highs and lows. And when them lows uh, are there, they're disappointing. And it's very often, not very often you get your highs, so enjoy when they come along. Yeah, indeed. And what it was making me think of Ireland's subkeeper, Rob Elliott there, um, I think he missed his stag do to go and play in the pre-season friendlies in uh, international friendlies in the States for Ireland so as you said once we have that type of commitment it'll always be welcome just before I let you go Alan I know you have a lot of good stuff about your club career in there from Old Trafford to Wembley and there's so many fans from different clubs that would be certainly interested in having a read of it like from Swindon and Portsmouth a real love affair with Portsmouth throughout the years which it's still very much prevalent today you're still very heavily involved there yeah, I'm, I'm first team coach and I have been for the last year and a half and the club, you know, was virtually on its knees up until a couple of years ago and uh, worked through some tough times, which coincidentally was through when I developed kidney cancer and, you know, we were, we were down to very few people and 
had to take you know two pay cuts and lots of people laid off by the football club. But you know we managed to to, to stick together and the club has pulled its, itself from from the depths of despair really to a club that's functioning now and it's debt free and it's moving forward and the fans are fully behind the club. So that's been that's been wonderful and it's been a big part of my life. And as was Swindon, as was Lou Macari who gave me the opportunity. To, to make my league debut and I spent four wonderful years at Swindon learning my career uh, learning my trade playing you know some some same, some fantastic football under Lou Macari with promotions mm. and again with Osvaldo Ardila so it was a wonderful time I still live in Swindon I live in Swindon but, but commute to Portsmouth and stay down uh, two or three nights a week so it's uh, it, it's fantastic it will end one day uh, that association probably with the sack at some point along the way which is a natural thing that happens with football but whatever happened I've achieved the fact that I've managed 360 odd games to Portsmouth and given all I can in trying to take the club forward whether it be coaching whether it be um, you know working in the academy and, and just generally have an affection for the club and as I did for Swindon as well so you know overall I've had a, I've, I've had a great time uh, I've loved it and I'm still enjoying it now and I take every day uh, as a blessing that I get up in the morning and I go into being involved in something that I've been involved in since I was 16 uh, professionally uh, and since I was eight uh, playing football as a young kid so it's been a, it's been a great honour and it's been hard work um, and it's not something I get a little bit annoyed sometimes you know, it must be easy it's not you, you've got to earn your right to stay in uh, any sort of trade or any profession for this long and I've enjoyed every moment because I've worked very hard to, to stay where I am Indeed you have. Alan McLaughlin, thanks a million for joining us on Pogue McGull. I'd advise any Irish football fan to get out there and buy the book. And indeed, any fans of English football, Alan, of course, graced a lot of good clubs there and shares a lot of fond memories in the book indeed. Alan, thanks a million. We wish you the very best of luck. Appreciate that. Thank you very much.